the artists say, when the devil goes by, you don't know, and if the devil never goes by, it will never be a good project. Welcome to Archonnect Sessions One to One. I'm Amelia Taylor Hochberg, and this week, November 16th, 2015, we're featuring an interview from earlier this year with Jens Bettelsen, a Danish architect working in historic preservation of royal buildings. Jens's official title translates to something along the lines of Royal Building Inspector, Royal Builder, or Royal Surveyor, occupying the historic position of the King's Architect, or in this particular case, the Queen's. In practice, this means that Jens oversees the health of such buildings as the Danish Parliament and the Royal Family's Winter Home. Jens was appointed to the position in 2011, and his Copenhagen firm, Bettelsen and Scheving Architects, specializes in preservation work. A friend of mine, Matthias Molebik, used to work with Jens, and he helped set up this interview. You'll occasionally hear him chime in as translator during the interview. All right, I hope you enjoy this one-to-one with Jens Bettelsen. Maybe I should, should start with my job for the moment. I have a job for, for the Danish state, dealing with all with a lot of, of square meters listed buildings in Copenhagen and in Denmark. Uh, among those, uh, the royal castle for the Queen of Denmark. And uh, she has not only one in Copenhagen, but she has uh, a, a huge castle outside Copenhagen. And uh, to, in addition to that, the, the castle where the parliament is, is situated. And uh, we are going. To, we we are maintaining the the buildings, and we make projects there. And uh, my title is I don't know if there's a good English title, but it's a royal building ins- inspector. But I think that a better way is a royal builder, mm. and it's an old title from back in the 16th and 17th century, where it was a tradition that the king has an architect that he always used, and. Uh, I'm the modern version of this architect. How did you come into that position? Well, by coincidence in some way, <laughs> you know, when uh, it's it's a job that, that uh, people who are dealing with history and, and uh, architecture from the past is interested in. And uh, we ha- I have a studio at that time, uh, quite a small studio at, uh, with 10, 15 people. And uh, we said, okay, it would be nice to have a job where we knew what to do the next four years. So we... Uh, made them an, uh, an offer and uh, got the job. So was that a proposal for a specific project that you, um, when you pitched your work to them? No, it's it's a kind of frame where where you you, uh, you give your how much are you going to to have per hour, and what the percentage for in the percentage of the building costs are you going to have for doing something, and then a lot of of uh, peculiar projects and art projects and funny projects and, and things like that pop up and you solve all the problems. Something is just dealing with maintenance of the houses and other others are really interesting uh, finding a solution for a, a problem that the houses, the, the, all the buildings have. So in terms of interpreting the intent and the hopes of the client, this in this case being Danish royalty, who exactly are you consulting with in order to accomplish these preservation goals? And what is the overall, besides, uh, you know, keeping maintenance and keeping the structure standing, what is the overall long-term goal of the preservation? One thing that might be of interest of, of uh, American listeners is that, that uh, the royal family here in Copenhagen and most of the, the houses in, in, um, in Europe 
is the royal houses uh, actually they're living at kind of a everyday life and they try they have children they follow their children children to school they walk in the streets they are actually living in a, a casual way at the same time as they represent something bigger they represent the, the country so they have they have both both the the everyday rooms and the everyday uh, facilities everything so so they have actually a house that works for an ordinary life in some way but we are not dealing with with the king or queens directly we are dealing with uh, some better investment officials 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 who who take care of all the all the buildings and uh, that they are actually our customers and then suddenly sometimes we pop up with uh, with a project that the queen's uh, people need so then she is just a, a Uh, renting a renting she's a renting mm. person actually yeah. and yeah, yeah it makes perfect a, sense yeah it makes <laughs> sense so that means that, that we have to deal with two problems we have to take care of all the representative qualities and uh, all the qualities that a listed building have and at the same time we have to to make it function so it's a modern building and and can you can live a modern life in the buildings at the same time Are there any particular technological or perhaps in particular um, conservation and energy efficiency technologies that you have kind of overseen the implementation of? If there's these updates to these structures to keep them functioning to the needs of a modern tenant, what are the kind of technologies that specifically in regards to energy conservation that you've seen being implemented in these homes? Oh yeah, that's it's a bit difficult because a listed building you're not able to lift it to a, a level of uh, energy efficiency that is interesting compared to a modern building. But at the same time, it's the taxpayers who who pay all the the maintenance of the building, so they of course are interested that we don't use too much money at a project and and don't use too much money on energies and and things like that. So we always trying to put a little more insulation in a building. Or we try to to uh, screw on the small bottoms, so you can you can maybe uh, look at the the, the energy for um, uh, energy consumption, energy consumption, mm. and you can turn the small bottoms so you always uh, make a more efficient or, or cheaper way to use the building, mm. and and that might be um, well. I, I think it's it's interesting to. That when you when you look at a modern building, you know that it it's going to be changed for maybe every ten years. But a listed building never changes. It's only small things that you can change. So if you make a, a, a balance between the many years that a listed building has stands, maybe three, four, five hundred years, then it's suddenly a very, very efficient building in itself because all the bricks are there, all the t timber is there. Only small changes has been made. So. In the in the big perspective, then actually it's very efficient to have a listed building. So you recently released a book, which the English name is "The Principle of Appreciation." Yeah. So in that book, you're detailing your process, like the actual methods that you use and rely upon to go through different preservation projects. Could you explain, in the context of a particular project that you're working on right now, how you go through that process? Yeah. Actually, the the principle was invented when we were asked to to change the roof on the Queen's Palace, and uh, we found out that that someone for fifty years ago, a hundred years ago, had made some changes that actually did work, but it was not the perfect way of uh, dealing with a listed building. It was the timber constructions that had been changed to 
or, or supported by, by steel constructions. And everyone who, who is dealing with listed buildings know that this is absolutely forbidden to do something like that. But if we had to change it and, and go back to the perfect the original state, then we would use a lot of money. Instead of that, we said, okay, this wrong thing actually works. So we keep it and we, we try to, to make, maintain the building and to change the roof without going too much back and, and be too, uh, too idealistic about the, the original stage. And then we said, okay, this is not the first time we've made a problem like this. Like this. We know there's always a certain amount of money. We know that there's some, there are always limits. There are limits because, not only because of money, but also, also because there's people who have some ideas. And that's why we, we have to deal with several, several different problems that, that is maybe not uh, always the best for the listed building. But we have actually three ways to look at the building we, in, in the appreciation uh, principle. That is to say, we have to look at the original stage of the house. How was it built? What was the idea, the original idea? And then we look at all the changes made during the years. And uh, then we look at, at, the, at the people living there today and what are their uh, claims or their wishes, uh, things like that. And then we try to combine these. We have a critical uh, attitude to everything. And then we, we make a combination and have a project that is actually combining if we are able to go back to very close to the original states and at the same time meet the actual owners or, or the tenants of a building, then it's, it's wonderful. And if we at the same time can spare some money by accepting some of the changes uh, on the road, then we have a project that will be within the limits of, of uh, the budget and at the same time will straighten the original states of the building. That's a perfect wish for every project. And Matthias was kind enough to send over a kind of outline for what your overall process is in working through these different preservation projects. And one point in particular that struck out to me was nearing the end of the process after you've done a bunch of background research and compiled the different intentions and structural restraints and everything and all the different limitations that will go into the project. There's an incredibly important stage that I think is no American architect would explicitly admit admit to, which is simply we let the thoughts that we've had rest for a bit and we let it sit in the unconscious is the way at least that Matthias phrased it. And that's a little bit of that. Of course, that makes perfect sense in a way. But at the same time, I would love for you to explain a little bit more what exactly is the value of that type of thinking of letting an idea rest and what happens in that stage that you then uh, can reap the benefits of later on. What is very funny is that it's actually American advertisers, experts, that invented, invented the, the five principles that I, ah. I sent. It's a guy called James Whip Young, and he, made a, he wrote a small book called How to Get Ideas or something like that. And actually, it was very funny because he is working to tell that what is important is to do exactly the same that, that we do as architects. And the, the important period is, is actually the, the period where you have gathered all you know, all that is needed to know about the building. We gather something about the architect, about the, the, the limitations from, uh, and, and all the things you just mentioned. And then the next period is if you try to push something out of the, of the tube, then it will, you will not succeed. If you can give it, a, uh, you can rest a bit, 
then suddenly ideas are flowing. You know, when you are standing in the shower or you are walking the dog or whatever you do, then suddenly a, a good idea will, might pop up. And I said, this is the way I want to, to work. And actually, it's the way we do today. So we are actually, um, we are able to, to write the five principles in our, uh, for our job in a way that uh, is similar to this advertised guy uh, that wrote the principles in the 1950s or 60s in America. <laughs> That's lovely. Recently, I spoke to an architect who was working on a project for a, the Milan Expo, the World Expo there, to represent the United States pavilion at that expo. And of course, his client is the U.S. State Department. And of course, it's difficult to draw a line between being the architect to represent the client of the U.S. State Department versus the preservation architect for the Danish royalty. However, they're both very, obviously very high status clients whose intentions are going to be very highly speculated about and interrogated once the actual architect or the architecture comes to being into being. When we were speaking with this architect who was representing the U.S. at the uh, Milan Expo, he was relating very little individual agency in how not just the design, but in the actual ideology of the design, how that was able to come across. And so his his design wasn't necessarily able to have that percolation period, have that stage three where you just sit and let things rest. But it was more like, here's a brief and we'd like you to follow it. And I think that in that, in, in some respects, that gives, that's a very clear way for the architect to operate where they know exactly which values they're trying to put forth. However, in your role, the interpretation of that national ideology or that national presence is much more fluid because you're interpreting it through time and through heritage and history. So, and one of these major topics that all preservationists deal with is, you know, how do you decide which values you want to preserve? So what is your, and you, and you have such a clear method for all of the other options. So how do you approach that question for each project? Well, I think it's, it's very important that it, it's a little bit like a conductor, a conductor who have to take the Beethoven's uh, symphony once again. And uh, he's very fond of, of Beethoven. He's very fond of the symphony and the music and everything. He has the, the perfect orchestra. And then at the same time, he has to put something new in it. So you have to deal with, with the quality of the original artwork, and then he has to, to, to put himself in the new interpretation of it. And I think that is, that is the thing that is that, um, important for us, that we, we have to know a lot, and at the same time we have to be at a distance. So we, we are not that selfish, that we think we are more important than the, that the old buildings we are dealing with, but we... Don't, it's very important that we are not anonymous. So we, we have a, a certain approach and we have, give it a twist in some way that is our twist and, and our interpretation. And that's, that's one thing. The other thing is that, that it is very funny that when you make advertise or you made a piece of art or you made a piece of architecture, then you have to work with a lot of things that maybe it doesn't make sense when you're dealing with it. But uh, at the same time, if you're not working with the problems all the time, then you don't know when, you know, you say, and, and artists say, when the devil goes, goes by, you don't know. And if the devil never goes by, it will never be a good project. So that is why that this period that, uh, where you go in the unconscious, that is, you can, you can uh, do it in, in, a, in, a conscious, in, in, in a conscious manner. That now I'm going from the conscious to the unconscious. 
But if you're not aware of this, of the qualities that can can pop up, then uh, you might not uh, reach the, the best project. It's a fun thing. So can you imagine doing this type of work for another client, for some other international, perhaps, client? Yes, I think there's something in architecture that's international and it's always important. It's a way of living. It's a way of, of feeling rooms and, and feeling places. And, and it's it's very, actually, I think it's, it's funny when you go around in the world, you can find in different worlds and different cultures, you can find the same quality of a building. And it can be very inspiring to, to go around and be and see and and enjoy the same qualities and you, that you can do here in Denmark. And actually, there's there's um, when uh, there's always the climate to to take care of. And of course, when you are living at Honolulu or something somewhere other very different from Denmark, then you have to to deal with shadow and uh, wind instead of dealing with the cold. And the lack of flight, but uh, at the same time, you, when architects are, are are dealing with the climate problems, they always are finding qualities that is the same. It's wonderful to be in half shadow all over the world. It's wonderful to have a, a dry house all over the world, and a lot of other other purposes that is is very important for for all people. What about your own relationship to a kind of national identity? How has that changed as you're continuing to do this kind of work? And I imagine it's, it feels you have a, a sense of pride to be able to be the kind of holder of this um, one version or one incarnation of a, a national identity through its architecture. So do you feel more Danish or less Danish? Or, or how does this type of work influence your own sense of national identity? I think that... I never feel Danish in some way. I always feel like an architect that can work everywhere. And I think that, that it's very funny to travel in Europe because you will always find some tracks from one architect to the, to the other. The architects in Denmark that's very inspired from an architect from France. Royal Castle here in Copenhagen is inspired from, from Rome, from Vienna, from Germany. And good sources are always traveled. So it's uh, as an architect, you can travel along the, the tracks from good architecture. And the ideas of, of Germany, for instance, in the 17th century was traveling through Greenland, to the States, to, and was part of the, the New England style. And if you, you find the, the tracks from that, then there's more Berlin, more Sweden, more Denmark in the New England style that is American. But you cannot put, uh, take an, an, a New England house and just put it in Denmark and say, wow, this is Danish. You have to change it a little bit. But this architecture has always traveled. I like how you explain the the traveling and the co-influence of factors in the European context because, and while I'm not here to make explicit comparison between U.S. and, and Danish uh, preservation techniques, there is this kind of myopic perspective or very short-sighted perspective in a lot of American preservation discussions because Simply, we don't have as long of a national identity or a national history to refer to as a lot of other European nations. And in fact, it, it, you see these kind of debates happening in Europe around architectural preservation that have a perspective of, say, geological time. Like, not to say that that's actually how they're conceiving of structures changing, but their perspective is much more capable of taking a long range and looking at both far in the past and far into the future of how 
the overall architectural history and architectural preservation should be dealt with. Where in the U.S., things seem a lot more short, can seem a lot more short-sighted. Like we have incredible debates around should or shouldn't this one structure, this one, say, residential building in this one neighborhood that is so-called historic, should it exist because its moldings look like this? Or should it exist because, in fact, the land it was built on was supposedly protected? And a lot of these debates get incredibly complicated around the interaction with the public because the public becomes a amorphous mass of incredibly diverse stakeholders and different interests trying to represent an either pro or con debate. And there's there's many different instances that, you, that we could refer to in, in the U.S., but I don't think it's necessary to hone in on one specific example. But I just wanted to ask you then, especially working in this national context, what is your interface with the public and how are you trying to or are you not trying to? Or what is the relationship with interpreting a public's idea of what the architecture should be or, or what it should be for the future? I think that it's very important that, that you don't look at the don't look too long back because the, the building we are working with for the moment, not only the, the Queen's Parcel, is actually buildings from the 50s, 1950s and 1930s that People hated for some years, and now we are learning people to love them because it was a very strict idea with the project. And uh, when when we are dealing with this this type of buildings, we always try to find the original idea. And uh, there's always if if there's a good quality in the architecture, then there's always an original idea. And if you you follow that and try to to uh, enlighten it and tell people about the ideas. Then suddenly, people who don't who hate old buildings and hate listed buildings and owners who want to be to build a new house, they suddenly try to they, they they will pop up loving their buildings. And I think in 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 the states, there's a lot of buildings. When I'm traveling, I'm always traveling to look at architecture, and I see a lot of of buildings that is very interesting. And some of the buildings, much of the buildings, is actually from the last hundred years. And, and uh, they are very interesting. And when you're looking in, in Europe, there's architects travel to the U.S., Chicago, and other cities around the 1900, and they came back with inspiration. And I think that that is very important that you don't look at at, uh, at architecture as something that can only be new, and but as something that it was given, it was born with an idea. And if you follow the idea. Then suddenly projects that's, or, or buildings will only look a little bit odd or a little bit old or uh, something from last year. Then it, you can uh, you can enlighten them and and uh, people will love them because of their original qualities. Sometimes you have to remove something or you have to add something because of functional claims. But but uh, at the same time, if you follow the original idea. It, most people will love them. And in interpreting these different projects and doing the research to stage the process, do you work with any other particular specialists or, say, historians or curators or other professionals in interpreting the projects that you're going to work with and then helping you decide how to move forward besides architects? Yeah, we, art historians, for instance, art historians who is expert in, in, uh, in architecture is very good to speak with. And uh, engineers at the same time, there's, in, when you look at, at the engineers, they have a history and are dealing with, with historical engineer projects that is very interesting. So it's, it's, not only, it's not only architects that we speak with, but we speak with everyone. We always try to stand shoulder by shoulder when we start a project 
we gather the, the people who are uh, important for this project. It might be a priest, it might be a, an engineer, it might be a historian, acoustics, and every, everyone. And then we invent a project. So just one more question for you specifically about the, uh, the, your book, The Principle of Appreciation. In devoting the book to outlining this process that you have for approaching preservation projects, who did you imagine being the core audience for this book? Were you thinking this would be a way to share your method with architectural peers or as a kind of record as well for yourself to be able to do self-studies and have a kind of record of your practice? Or who were who you imagining would be the, uh, the core audience for this book? Well, my employees for once. <laughs> <laughs> Good. You know, when sometimes you have to write something and tell your employees what is the main idea of the, of the things we are doing here. And how do you have to think on the project? How do you have to deal with it? And that might be very important to write something down. And I don't know if they had read it, but of course, the first, the first step was my employees. The next step was my colleagues and uh, our customers that maybe they didn't read it, but they know that here's a guy who knows something or he, he means something or he, there's something he wants or a certain perspective that he has. And it's not always the meaning of, of each, each sentence, but, but it's the meaning of someone who has some ideas. And then I've used the last half year since I, I wrote the book to develop the ideas and uh, to try to, to combine it with, for instance, this guy, the, the advertised guy from the 1940s, 50s, James uh, Webb Young, just to, to make the principle more precise. And my hope is that, that at the studio, we could use the principles every day when we start a project. When, so it's a kind of quality control that we know that we know everything about the project. We know everything about the architect and the limitations and everything. And before we, we go to developing the idea. So if it was a book for, for people, you know, I'm, I'm a publisher at the same time. And I know that it's, it can be difficult to reach people and to, to make an angle that people will understand and think this is very interesting. So it starts somewhere. It starts with, with some ideas and something that you really want and you really want people to understand. So my employees and myself, and then we'll see. <laughs> so I retract my prior statement saying that that was the last question. I have one more question for you. What continues to give you inspiration over the course of continuing your preservation practice? I think that, that uh, the inspiration is always the project. When building is from the 17th or the 18th centuries, there uh, always this idea that maybe you, you were not familiar to the idea. And when you start uh, investigating the project, then you suddenly find out that the colors that are used was really strange and not as we would do it today. That's very inspiring to see the combination of colors that, that might be quite different. And... Uh, if you follow the house and you follow their original ideas, then there's a lot of inspiration there. And it might be a project from 19th century as well. And here in Denmark, we have an official board of culture. They're, they are saying yes or no to projects. And, um, and uh, they, they think that the most interesting part of the architecture for the moment is the 1950s and 60s. So... I think every time you deal with a historical building, there's a lot of inspiration to find if you not only read the building, but read the time, 
the ambitions of the architect, the colors, the landscape and everything. So when you are filled up with all the information about a project, you have seen it and felt it, then, then suddenly the inspiration pop up from itself, from that point of view. Well, Jens, thank you so much for sharing your perspective. And it was really wonderful talking to you. Thanks for listening to our one-to-one interview with Jens Bettelson, and a special thanks to Matthias for helping coordinate the interview. Danilo Voinov edits the podcast, and Matt Skillings composed the music. Myself and Paul Petrunia are the producers of one-to-one. You can learn more about this week's interview in our show notes and listen to new episodes every Monday. Just to make things clear, we are a separate podcast from Arcanex Sessions, so if you want to keep hearing one-to-one interviews, make sure to subscribe. To keep up with podcasting news from Arconnect, follow us on Twitter through at ArcSessions or hashtag ArconnectSessions. And let us know what you think by rating us on iTunes. You can also email us through connect at Arconnect.com. Thanks again for listening.